1: Hello and welcome to the Esports Biz Show. I'm your host, Justin Jacobson. This week, we'll be discussing esports teams. Just as a disclaimer, nothing here is intended as legal advice, as all the information is for educational purposes only. This week's guest is Justin Varghese. Justin handles sales and marketing partnerships for esports organization Panda. He's also an esports play-by-play caster and event host for a variety of games. Prior to working with Panda, Justin worked at ShotCall as a business development manager, as well as a marketing manager in North America for DreamHack. Thanks for joining us.
2: Hey, thanks for having me, Justin. Uh, and I know we already made this joke uh, over email and over LinkedIn, but let's just beat it to death. Great choice in first names, got to say, really nailing it.
1: Right, I'm definitely a fan, you know, of my name. Always always try to get Justin.com, but, you know, they beat, they beat me out to it. What can I do?
2: There's just too many of us. We, we are we are all fighting for precious space. Um, hmm. Though that being said, I think in the Justin tier list, it's probably Timberlake and then Justin Wong, and then we kind of fall below everybody else, right? I always
1: <laughs> say just you know Justin Bieber, Justin Timberlake, those are the ones that I sue. But I guess Justin Wong is more apt for esports.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, he's only the greatest fighting game player America's produced, right? <laughs> Name Justin.
1: <laughs> Yeah, there you go. There you so, go. And he has got our name too. It works out. <laughs> amazing. So, you know, thanks again for joining us. Tell us what about your past eSports and gaming experience. What was the first game you played and how'd you get involved in the business side?
2: Ooh, first game I ever played. That's a real toughie. Um, part of me wants to default to to Super Mario Bros. on uh, the NES. I think that's a, a classic for a lot of folks, especially somebody like me who was born in 1990. Um the first game I ever remember playing and have more vivid memories of, however, was a Sonic game. But it wasn't the one on the Sega. It was actually a handheld Sonic device, which I'm sure drove my parents crazy because there's no headphone capability. It's one of those handheld games that, you know, had like three levels and like three sounds total, I swear. No mute button. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, so I played a ton of that. Uh, by far, the game that I think, as I was younger, had the largest impression on me really came when uh, my dad got us a Nintendo 64. So that would be Super Mario 64, as far as one-player games go, uh, and then Super Smash Brothers for the mm. Nintendo 64 was the other yes, big Smash
1: one. Brothers on 64 was definitely one of those game changers. Same with Mario Whoa. Kart on 64.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. Both of those fantastic. Uh, Diddy Kong Racing as well, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I, Mario I, Tennis, I, a nod to. Oh yeah. All right, all right. You know what you, you know what you're doing. You know what you're doing.
1: Referencing the the, the Mario Tennis out there.
2: All right. <laughs> Are we got <about> <laughs> yeah. a Mario Tennis combo. Is that what's about to happen? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so how would you kind of no. get moved to the business side?
2: Yeah. Well, you know, with, with Smash it was very interesting. Um, I, I I got to the point that a lot of people get to where you're the best in the neighborhood. And so you you think that that makes you the best in the world. And I kept running into more and more people. Um, and eventually it got to the point where as I'd find people that would be slightly better than me, um, I kind of established this, this system of what I called mentors and rivals back then, right? Where you have your mentor that is so much better than you, right? And your rival that is a little bit better than you. And the whole concept as I was playing was trying to make it so that I could continue to improve until eventually my mentor would become my rival and you'd have to find another mentor and repeat over and over again. Uh, So it got to the point where um, Smash 64 was actually the first game that I was competitive in. Um, I was... Uh, A pretty good player outside of uh, and within the DFW Metroplex. I think in Texas, I was one of the top players at my peak. um, Maybe in the rate of like top 50 in the world, um, potentially, back then. Though there weren't as many rankings and then things like that back whenever I was uh, competitive. And ultimately, what I felt whenever I was competing... Was the thrill of competition, um, and I know this is a podcast, so nobody can really see what I look like. But you could probably take a look at a couple of pictures. Maybe if you see some of my prior casting work, you could take a look and know that I wasn't really—I
1: uh, didn't have what it took. Let's to say be you're a, not dunking, an you're not running a 440.
2: Exactly, exactly. I, mean, I did—I didn't have what it took to be a stellar athlete. You know, i, I, I wasn't competitive in, in college, high school, little old elementary school, uh, but through gaming, I was able to find an avenue that allowed me to experience competition for the first time. Um, And I think that giving people that opportunity to compete and grow and learn in a safe environment is extremely important. And ultimately, for me, what I wanted to do more than anything else was put myself in positions where I could bring that to as many people as possible. So the transition was going from being a player to a play-by-play commentator. You know, my thought was then, uh, you know, if I can get more people to understand why I have this passion for this game, uh, then more people can maybe you know, take the jump, take the leap and start competing themselves. You know, I started off in Smash, of course, and then went on to cover about a dozen different titles, did some work uh, with everybody from, uh, you know, Activision, Blizzard, all the way to the Pokemon company. And eventually I had this very weird resume that comprised of working in tech, doing sales there, you know, doing a ton of... Uh, commentary for a variety of communities and having all these community ties, as well as a, a bit of esports startup uh, experience as well from a, from a marketing and partnership standpoint. And all of that somehow culminated in me landing a role at DreamHack, uh, where I was the marketing manager uh, in North America for almost two years. Um, so I was responsible for building up that first show that we did uh, in Dallas, which was obviously very personal to me as somebody who's from the DFW Metroplex. Um, I ended up also helping build up two other shows, uh, one in Atlanta as well as the inaugural show in Anaheim. And then we had a ton of very big plans for Dallas and Atlanta in 2020, but I suppose you could probably fill in the blanks on how that story went.
1: Definitely. So, you know, kind of touching on the casting a little bit. So, how'd you kind of first get involved? And you know, in addition to Smash, what are some other titles that you've worked in?
2: Yeah, casting is is an interesting one. Um, for me, it, it was it, it all really started off, I think, at the tail end of college, where uh, I had made some new friends, and they were actually very competitive um, in uh, some of the newer iterations of Smash. And they, you know, played against me in 64, and then I played them in some of these newer iterations, and they said, hey, man, like, you need to start going to, to to some of the tournaments for some of these more newer titles, because, you know, there's actually, you know, more money that's coming into this space, and you could maybe do well for yourself there. And so being in college, I learned the way that I would typically learn in college, which was by going on YouTube. Uh, and, and doing my research that way. Uh, and at the time, I had stumbled upon um, what was considered then to be the Super Bowl of Smash Brothers. It was a tournament called Apex. And I really fell in love as I was watching some of these newer titles. You know, at the time, it was Melee, um, and it wasn't really just with the game itself and the fluidity of the movements, the mind games, the players played, but also with the fact that this was the first time that um, I had heard smash with play by play and color commentary. And I remember thinking to myself, like there's no way in hell I'll ever have a chance to do something like that. But I feel like if I did have a chance, I'd have a lot of fun with it. Uh, so I did some more research and digging and it turned out that the, largest broadcast company for smash brothers had relocated and their newest venue that they were in for the south was actually about six minutes driving distance from where i lived at the time and to make things even more uh you know simple i had a friend who was friends with their director of content strategy who had also done a lot of commentary work and so it was as simple as just Jumping into the DMs of this guy Sean Horn, um, you know we chatted a little bit. I explained like, hey, like I, you know, I, I've seen you do some commentary work, and I was just really curious, like how'd you get into it, um, and and what's a starting point for you know a total beginner like myself. And so we talked for a while, and eventually Sean said, you know, hey, you know, at some point you should really swing by what we're doing. Um, we'll we'll chat in person, and then who knows, maybe I'll put you on for a game or two. And so then I showed up, you know, a couple weeks later with a friend that I had made a few weeks prior to that. Um, somebody who industry people might know, uh, Nabil Pervez, one of the co-founders of AOE Creative. Um, we pulled up, and I thought that maybe if we were very lucky, we'd get a game before a white hook would pull us off of the off of the commentary desk, like Looney Tunes. Um, but they actually really liked us, and, uh, and the first time that I did it, I ended up doing about three hours straight of casting um and we got to close out the night together as well Um, so it was a really really cool experience and then from there the snowball really really started started rolling down the hill um i ended up getting sponsored by them to be one of their uh, premier casters along with nabil uh we ended up doing our first regional tournament got flown out to my first national then my first international and then after about a year of doing that, that was when I started branching out into other titles, you know, doing a little bit of Halo with MLG back then, um, eventually getting to do some Hearthstone with Blizzard, some Pokemon with the Pokemon Company, all sorts of fun stuff. Uh, so, yeah, that, in a nutshell, hopefully that gives you some sort of idea. But really, I think it was it was a series of, of happy accidents Um being in the right place at the right time and honestly some really, really kind people that were nice enough to give me a shot and help nurture me along the way. Well,
1: that's an amazing story. And I think it, you know, gives some inspiration to some of our listeners, where it was one of these things where you, you know, learned about something, you identified, you researched, and you just reached out and put yourself out there and, you know, tried to find your in and you know, a lot of the times that's half the battle is putting yourself in that position. And, you know, as you saw, they were interested. You spoke to them. They invited you down. And it really kind of set you on this trajectory to, you know, essentially commentating at the highest level of the game.
2: Very lucky for sure. Very, very, very lucky. Um, you know, and, and I think that where things were when I started and where things are now is obviously very different especially for some of these grassroots communities. um, I think that there are so many more opportunities now because of how much easier I think it is to be able to stream a lot of this content. You know, back in the day, there was only a handful of of entities within Smash that would be streaming content uh, at a weekly. And now if we're talking about Smash and fighting games, even outside of that, um, that coupled with, how how big i think being able to cast remotely has gotten recently means that you know even if you're a novice there are ops it's just putting yourself out there um, and then being able to continue to refine what you do if that's the path that you ultimately want to go on
1: absolutely you know it's kind of just getting these opportunities and doing well and growing from there um so tell us a little bit about Panda. You know about the organization. You know, I've been enjoying Multiversus myself, so I definitely <laughs> know that. You know, there's some unique stuff that the organization's working on.
2: Yeah, I, I, real quick though, who do you play Multiversus?
1: I um, I enjoy Finn, and then I'll go in there and smash with the Iron Giant. But I think Finn is my go-to.
2: Man, you're you're a wild card. Yeah, I I used to Finn to win. That was uh, that was my go-to when the game first dropped. <laughs> um nowadays i'm playing quite a bit of wonder woman though she's been yeah she was the uh, really she
1: clicking. was my number two i would say
2: oh yeah she's been clicking I'll, I'll tell you what after after this podcast is done maybe we should get a couple games and that'll be fun um but 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 multiverse aside yeah Panda's is very weird uh in the world of gaming and esports um i'll come right out and say that panda is extremely weird yeah a lot of the titles that Articles like Forbes write about, you know, your League of Legends, your Counter-Strikes, your Rocket Leagues, your Valorants of the World. We don't play any of that. (laughs) Instead, we're really focused on what we feel uh, is the most diverse and the most untapped large audience uh, within all of gaming and esports. And that's the 1v1 space. So that means titles like Smash Brothers, Street Fighter, chess guilty gear these sorts of titles have been around for quite some time we're talking over two decades of competitive history and despite the fact that there has not been large publisher support for these titles you can very quickly see that just as a data point smash alone is a a top six esport in north america and the fastest growing esport in north america Without any prior investment from a publisher or developer until now. So, the Panda Cup uh, is the first ever licensed circuit for Smash Brothers in North America. This is a huge deal because it is the first time in Smash's 20 plus year competitive history uh, that Nintendo uh, is supporting a circuit. Um, so, this is covering for Super Smash Brothers Melee and Super Smash Brothers Ultimate. Getting this sort of relationship with Nintendo is extremely difficult, as I'm sure, you know, folks at Amazon know, they tried several th- several times through Twitch. Folks at Red Bull know they've tried several times as well. Um, even my old stomping grounds at DreamHack and ESL, we had tried to, to establish this sort of partnership with Nintendo, uh, and we weren't able to really get anywhere with it. Ultimately, the reason why Panda was able to have this sort of relationship with Nintendo... Um, is again because of that focus. Because we're so focused around the 1v1 space, it's made it so that no other brand in all of gaming and esports has more community equity than Panda when it comes to this audience. And as a result, because of that, coupled with our roots and history in games like Smash, as well as our reverence for the IP, it's made it so that Nintendo for the first time is really supporting and building with us a really strong infrastructure around this competitive community. And again, that's really important because when you look at the metrics right now with no support whatsoever, um, you know, Smash is outperforming, you know, properties like CDL and the Overwatch League, which have, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of infrastructure investment. Uh, The reality is that if you look at the CDL open uh, and Genesis of the same year, there was probably more PR people that were working on CDL um, than the number of people total that were putting together a grassroots tournament called Genesis. And despite that, when you look at peak viewership, more people tuned in for uh, Smash Brothers than they did for, for Call of Duty League. Obscene numbers, obscene numbers. And then even from a VOD standpoint, it's been really interesting to see how big... Those numbers are for Smash Brothers as well with, um, you know, BTS's Smash Summit actually having more views on one of their grand final sets than the first game of uh, the League of Legends World Finals uh, for, for their grand finals. So I think it's, you know, I bring all these data points up because, again, you know, people have this idea that Smash, you know, is grassroots. And as a result, we're really starting from zero when it comes to things like viewership, when the reality is that already with no support, there's quite a fire that's going and we're you know, our hypothesis is with what we're building with Nintendo, this will be the gasoline to really take things to the next level.
1: Amazing. So, you know, kind of there's a lot to unpack there. But I think first, do you think Nintendo's kind of chance of the change of their long-term stance had something to do with the laws changing in Japan you know I know for myself who's involved in you know Japanese eSports scene they in 2018 changed the law which previously outlawed you know eSports and competitive video game to you know now it's actually permitted and is regulated by the Japan eSports Union so it's kind of a whole new world in Japan these days.
2: I mean, I wouldn't be able to tell you tell you for sure, honestly. Uh, I don't have your legal chops. Um, but what I will say again is when you're talking about an entity like Nintendo, you know, things take time for sure. This is a, a company that, you know, has among the most recognized IP in the world. And even within Smash Brothers, right, that's a conglomerate of the most recognized IP, uh, not only in gaming, but in the world period, Right. People don't realize this, but Pokemon is the most profitable IP in the world. You know, it it outperforms entities like Disney and Marvel. And so, like I said before, ultimately, I think it comes down to having the right partner that understands and has that reverence for, of course, the Nintendo IP, but also with the associated IP that exists within Smash.
1: Definitely. So what's unique does the organization find from supporting the fighting game community and actually working with trust professionals, which you know I thought was an interesting, you know, ad that you guys have?
2: I think what's unique about working with, you know, the 1v1 space in particular is the fact that it is so different from any of the other communities within gaming and esports. And I can say that with confidence. Again, you know, uh, whether you're looking at the relationships that I have with various communities throughout esports from my time as a caster all the way to my time at DreamHack, where we would literally have everybody under one roof, there's just something so different about the 1v1 space. And I think that ultimately it comes down to the fact that this is the most diverse audience in all of gaming and esports, period. And I think that because for so long, a lot of these games have been optimized for offline, in-person play first, it's made it so that the community mindset and atmosphere overall feels much more communal. Um, and I think that to, to me, that makes it so that it is one of the most welcoming um, and unique spaces in, in all of gaming.
1: Definitely. So kind of from your position with the organization, how do you determine what brands that the team might work with ones that you might target and the team, the brands and stuff come and approach the team to work with you?
2: Yeah. When it comes to brands um, it's interesting. I was asked this question on on a panel recently as well. Um, Ultimately what we have to think of first is our community And that's really important because it means that we're not really focused on going after every single brand in the world, because candidly, getting every single logo under the sun would not be the right play for us as Panda or for our community. Instead, what we try to do is get a very deep understanding of what a brand's goals are overall, see if that merges well with our communities and what their core values are. And then if that's the case, being able to marry those two together by leveraging some of our community equity and out-of-the-box thinking to make it so that this brand can actively contribute to the ecosystems that Panda has, has built out. Um, so ultimately, from a brand and partnership standpoint, you know that means that we're really tactical about what brands we work with. Um, I think for me, looking at fighting games uh, and, and the 1v1 space as a whole, um, it's not necessarily a space that every single brand will find perfect fit. But the brands that do find fit will find, I think, disproportionate value compared to some of the more toast activations they can do within this space.
1: Interesting. So what are some recent partnerships that you guys have worked on?
2: Yeah, great question. So um, as of 30 minutes ago, <laughs> we announced Wonderful Pistachios coming on board uh, as an official snack partner of the Panda Cup. This is huge. It's one of the first times that they've ever been involved in gaming and esports. Uh, and we're really excited to have them on board. They'll be you know, sponsoring our last chance qualifier uh, as, as, as well. Um, it's gonna, they're going to be a title sponsor there. Which is very exciting. Um, before that, you know, a, a, about a month before that, we announced that Grubhub was coming on board as in a major way as well for the circuit. So a ton of momentum there. Um, but if we're looking at from a longevity perspective, I, I really think that ultimately it goes back to our relationship with Geico, which is very interesting, right? So this is about as non-endemic of a brand as it gets. You know, we've had that relationship, you know, for six going on seven years now. And again, the reason behind it is that they've seen this audience, they've seen this community, they know what the feeling is, and they really understand that by aligning with Panda, they're able to really have a stronghold in a place that isn't super populated with logos.
1: So what difference is in the kind of the community that you're mentioning between the fighting game community and maybe some of the other games?
2: Um, again, like I said before, I think the, the biggest difference really comes down to the community itself, um, not only in regards to how welcoming and open that community is. I mean, you see all walks of life, all kinds of people at any fighting game or 1v1 event. Um, the energy itself, I, I think, at these events is far greater than any other you know gaming and esports event because the kinds of people that are there are very different. When you look at most gaming and esports events... 99.9% of the people that are there are spectators and less than 1% are actually playing in that tournament. You contrast that to fighting games where still to this day, these are open bracket events. And what that means is, you know, somebody could listen to this podcast, get fired up about fighting games, buy a copy of Street Fighter, you know, compete at Evo in 2023 and get paired up against Daigo, one of the greatest street fighter players of all time. And I think the fact that you have this atmosphere that allows for those kinds of interesting Cinderella style stories where you can literally come from being a nobody to a somebody, you know, have that recognition and that personal growth, makes it so that to me, it's a much more engagement focused community, right? Because again, they're not there to just sit down and watch. They're there to tinker. They're there to communicate. They're there to build relationships, um, and so what you know, tying that back to the brand side again, like when when I'm trying to you know chat with brands and ideate around what kind of strategy makes sense for them as they're activating within this space, you know, try to think outside the box a bit more, away from just plays that only target that top 0.01 percent of player. And being able to have those activations that really provide value for the other 99.9% I think is very critical and very unique towards this space.
1: Yeah, and I think that's one of the more well-known ideas and things about the segment is that it's, you know, very diverse from, you know, kind of gender, race, ethnicity, all the different. It's a lot more than some of the other esports. Definitely. So what have you noticed in some of the partnerships that has really worked and, you know, that you're looking to kind of build from?
2: Yeah, from a a partnership standpoint, um, again, I think think what really works is being able to, if we're talking about from a broad standpoint uh, in regards to partners, having that radical candor on both sides is very important. You know, you have to be upfront on all sides to be able to have a, not only a clear understanding in regards to what's important for your partners and what's not important, but simultaneously being able to sometimes have those tough talks with your partners where, you know, maybe they'll come up with an idea, but because of the insight that you have, you know that this community might not like that idea as much as say a partner might. And so then it comes back to a process of being able to work together to figure out, okay, What is the line that we can take that makes the most sense, that aligns with a partner's specific brand goals and also aligns with the desires of the community itself? So being able to have that sort of transparency on both sides is extremely important, um, not only in regards to being able to sign a partner for year one, but also to have that Geico-esque relationship where it is multi-year and they're here for the long term.
1: Amazing. So what advice do you have for any individuals trying to maybe get involved in the casting and, you know, the hosting area that you've been involved in?
2: Yeah, I mean, whether you want to get into casting, or if you want to get into partnerships, or really any elements in esports, when I talk to young people, I tell them the same thing. Try a bunch of stuff, be present, show up and keep showing up. You know, the, the, The reality is that When I started doing a a lot of this, you know, casting work, it was not me waiting for the most, you know, pomp and circumstance opportunity to turn up at my door. And and that's when I would take the jump. It was really just jumping on, you know, jumping on whatever opportunities I could find, you know, back then it was casting in the back of a a game store, you know, doing that after, you know, clocking out of my my role in, in tech sales, coming back home. Having a quick dinner, then going to the store to be able to, to essentially grind that out was ultimately how I found my jumping off point into this space. Um, these days, I think for people, it's, it's getting easier because as we're seeing more and more events start to come to the US for esports, the reality is that a lot of those events need volunteers, need good people that they can rely on, and can incorporate those kinds of folks in all sorts of elements. I mean, back when I worked at Dreamhack, you know, the, the sheer number of volunteers that we would need to be able to make the show work at the level that it did was massive. And what we were very good at was finding those volunteers that were able to go above and beyond and bringing them on board uh, from a hired capacity, whether that was from a broadcast standpoint or even an operations perspective. Um, so again, a bit long-winded, but try a lot of stuff, show up and keep showing up. You know, the, the the eSports industry, it's it's big, but it's not as big as people think. And I think if as long as you're present, kind um, and, and, you know, looking for ways to provide value, people will know you uh, and people will, will more than be happy to, to bring you on
1: board. Absolutely. I think that's some amazing advice. So we kind of touched on DreamHack. What kind of information and lessons did you learn from working there that you're kind of now applying in your everyday with the organization?
2: Yeah, DreamHack was 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 very interesting. Um, I think that the the biggest value that DreamHack gave me was being able to think as a marketer. Um, DreamHack was really the first time where I felt like I had you know pretty solid control from a marketing perspective, um, and it made me be able to do things like test various strategies and activations to figure out, you know, what do different communities ultimately respond to? And that's really valuable because even though I'm on the sales and and marketing partnership side now, when I chat with brands, I'm able to turn my marketing brain on because I was able to exercise that for almost two years. And I think that that allows me to have uh, you know, a deeper con- conversation and connection with these brands that maybe somebody that has strictly a traditional sales background might not have.
1: Definitely. So, what advice do you have for any brands that are looking to work in, you know, esports, whether with Panda or just in general?
2: Be open to learning. Is, is massive. Um, you know, uh, being open to learn and test and think outside of the box is ultimately what makes gaming and esports activations unique. Um, I think that if brands come in um, and they strictly see 1825, take the campaigns that they've been running on, you know, um, sports broadcasts, and then slap, the, slap a logo on and walk away, they're not really going to have the impact that they're looking for. But if a brand is able to, you know, show up, provide that value to these communities, and really take the learnings of every activation to refine the next one, then I think that that's extremely valuable for all parties involved. Um, it is harder than, you know, dumping a bunch of money and and getting a logo and walking away. But I think the reward is much much greater for those brands um you know if i'm thinking about you know grubhub of course they're very excited about the reach that you know the panda cup will have but ultimately when you read their press release what they're very excited about is understanding how to best talk to this audience so that they can have that insight to continue to refine what they do within these spaces Um, and i think that brands can take a, a really nice page out of that by like i said being able to try be present and test as much as possible. Um, the other advice that I would give brands going into this space um, is when people tell you numbers, have them show their work. I, I can say that for, with confidence that when, when I when we show our numbers at Panda, we can very gladly open up what what our what our impressions look like from a Twitter dashboard and show that to a brand. Uh, and not to throw shade at any specific actors in this space, but there's a lot of folks that are within this space that. Will really sell you smoke and mirrors at the end of the day, um, and not have any true numbers to back that up. So, again, if you're especially if you're you're in talks with a brand and it's, uh, or if your brand in talks with you know any sort of gaming or esports organization, you know have them show their work for sure, uh, because you'll be really surprised the folks that are actually putting out serious numbers and actually have that community pull, and the folks that you know maybe have inflated Twitter followers and that's about it.
1: Absolutely. I think that's one of those really big things that people in this space, especially in the influencer driven world, focus on where it's just not about follower count, the engagement and how many views and how long those people interact. These are some of the things that tell a little bit more about how, you know, successful a campaign was. Not just the fact that somebody tweeted out to two million followers. Yep. They only got twenty likes. That's not a very high engagement
2: rate. Exactly. Exactly. You know. I think that for, especially with some of the brands that we're working with, um, even some of the brands that uh, you know, we're at the proposal stage at now, these are big established brands that everybody already knows about. In my opinion, they're not looking strictly for impressions. You know, Impressions can be the backbone of the campaign that ultimately justifies some modicum of media spend. But what they're really looking for is how they can make an impact on audiences, and I think that ultimately that's our job as people who work in partnerships that have deep knowledge about the communities that we represent, about you know the organizations and circuits and leagues that we represent. Ultimately, we have this knowledge in regards to what resonates within these communities, being able to marry that to a brand's identity and goals to create something new interesting and compelling for everybody involved is critical in ensuring that not only do they sign for that first year but they stay on board for the years to come
1: definitely it's always interesting when you see those deals that are announced and then after a year a couple months you never hear of it again and magically they're no longer logos on anything
2: yeah exactly and, and again like for me and for our team at panda like we fully recognize that Not only does a multi-year partnership mean you can do more cool stuff with somebody, but even from a pure dollars and cents perspective, it it costs a lot less to keep a customer for a long time than to get a new one.
1: Absolutely. So kind of bringing this towards the end, what's your favorite part about working in the esports and gaming world?
2: I think my favorite part, especially jumping in now, is that it feels like the work that I'm doing will have a long-term impact, even after my time in this space is done. There's really, I think, few people that have the opportunity to feel that way about the industry that they're in, let alone the company that they're in. And um, and And I'll put my hand up. When I started my career, I did not feel that way, you know? I was working in tech sales and ultimately just felt like I was some sort of a cog in a machine that what I did, you know, was lucrative from a financial sense, but it didn't have that real world impact that I necessarily craved. Uh, and now working in, in gaming and esports, the, again, like it goes back to what I've always believed in, which is trying to find more ways to introduce people, give people that safe open environment to be able to experience competition um, and learn and grow and develop. You know, I think that especially in, in, in these days, you know, we're living in extremely polarized times and gaming is one of the few things that people have that bring folks of all walks of life back to the table, back to having conversations with one another again. And so I think now more than ever, it's extremely important to be able to build these sort of places for people to congregate, be able to compete, be able to meet in order to make it so that folks, again, can experience competition and really come together over a shared passion and love.
1: Absolutely, so to kind of bring this to the end, what's the future for Panda as well as for the Panda Cup?
2: I think the future for Panda is really bright. Um, as well as for the circuit, you know, for, for us, again, like I said before, we're, we're not really covering the titles that have the most lip service. Um, you know, we're not covering some of those larger, you know, game, games that people understand um, because there's constantly press about it. For us, I think from now, for now uh, and for the future, it's really going to be an education game more than anything else. But what I'm really confident on is because of the impact that we're giving to our current partners, ultimately I think that more and more people are going to start recognizing the outsized value that lies within the fighting game space. And I think that as a result of that, coupled with the fact that you know you have new titles coming out from uh, Bandai Namco as well as Capcom with Tekken 8 and Street Fighter 6, respectively, slated for next year along with what Riot is building with, you know, Project L, the future is very bright for us, the future is very bright for the communities that we represent. And I think for the brands that are able to come in now, the future is extremely bright because they have that first mover advantage.
1: Definitely. So I try to end each of my episodes with my three questions. So what's your favorite game to watch?
2: Oh, favorite game to watch. Um, I mean, that's an easy one for me. You know, right now uh, it's Smash Brothers Ultimate. I, you know, I, I have a ton of fun watching that game. Um, Melee as well, especially at a top eight. I think it's really hard to beat those two titles. Um, the, the action is really fun. The intensity, um, you know, some of the storylines that that are involved in both of those titles make it a delight. Um, outside of fighting games. Uh, you know, I I I think that from a as a caster, I, I definitely have to give a shout out to the Counter Strike folks. I think from a production perspective, you know what they do in regards to being able to weave a narrative uh, is extremely impressive. Uh, but yeah, if I'm not watching Smash, then I, I guess you know I'll, I'll turn on the occasional Counter Strike event just to to tune in every now and then.
1: Definitely. So, what's your favorite game to play?
2: Um. Right now, like you, I'm playing a ton of multiverses. Uh, it's, you know, I think that uh, you know, having that sort of game that um, is so easily accessible within, within the, the fighting game space is really exciting. Uh, and the fact that it's bringing a lot of folks to the table, not only from within the fighting game community and the 1v1 space as a whole, but also beyond that is very exciting. Uh, put way too many hours into that. Um, if we're talking about my favorite game of all time, I, I alluded to it before, but um, Super Mario 64, really easy uh, on that on that side. I think it had a huge impact on me. Um, and if we're talking about, you know, maybe my favorite game of this year that I've played, um, that's an easy one for me personally. It's Elden Ring. <laughs> Poured way too many hours into Elden Ring.
1: <laughs> awesome. So, who's your favorite video game character?
2: That's a that's a really really tough one. Um,
1: Sounds oh, like Mario be, could be a good one, but
2: that's very tough. You know, I, yeah, I, I think that for me, right now, if I have to just pick one character um, from an impact standpoint, um, probably Ellie from The Last of Us and The Last of Us Two. Um, I think that through her, you know, especially as polarizing of a game as Last of Us 2 was um, what they did an extremely good job of was putting you directly into the shoes of someone that was um, consumed by, you know, blind revenge. And being able to essentially take the player on that journey where you do some really, really terrible things as a result of that. Uh, and it's not until the perspective shifts that you realize some of the actions of, of what, what, you, what you've been consumed to do. Um, I think that her personal growth throughout, you know, both of those games has been really, really unique um, and is definitely pushing the genre of, you know, or the art form, I think, of, of games as, as a medium of storytelling to, to really the next level. So definitely up there for, for me personally.
1: Amazing. So, you know, thank you so much for joining us. This was extremely insightful. Tell about where they can connect with you and the team.
2: Uh, You can connect with me uh, at Jvark 1990 on all platforms. Um, You know, Twitter and LinkedIn are primarily where you'll find me. Um, And then when it comes to Panda, you can find us on Twitter uh, at Panda Global um, on on Twitter and on Instagram. Um, And uh, on LinkedIn, it's uh, just Panda.
1: Amazing. So thanks everybody again for tuning in. And make sure to follow me on Twitter, Justin J E S Q. Check Apple Podcasts for all our past episodes.